is Very Public Affairs, the podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Here's your host, Wayne Burns. Welcome to Very Public Affairs. I'm Wayne Burns, the Executive Director of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs, and thank you for joining us. Government relations teams are often to the fore in corporations when there is a change of government, as there was at the national level in Australia in May 2022. I recently spoke to two seasoned heads of government relations about their approach to best position their corporation with new and existing faces in the cabinet, the ministry, parliament, and in the public service, and their thoughts on good practice and their capabilities of public policy and advocacy. George Karachanakis has three decades of experience in government relations, including two decades at Asia-Pacific financial services giant IAG, where he's executive manager of government relations. And Daniel Parsons is director of public affairs at Asia-Pacific health insurer, Bupa. I started asking George about the most important tasks that he faces when there is a change of national government and how to position an organisation with new ministers, other MPs and public servants when there is a stampede of interests wanting FaceTime soon after the election. Even though there was an expectation that Labor would win, they were worried about the outcome of the 2019 elections. They didn't want to tempt fate, if you like. So the stampede often occurs by those people we just mentioned that haven't done their homework previously. Like I reached out to the new ministers and other members and congratulated them. I said, I'd like to meet you when you have an opportunity. And so I was able to connect with them in a number of them, the key ones, during the June sitting period. So if you've already established those relationships, they're more likely to uh, want to meet with you even early on. But if you haven't and you're coming in cold, those government relations people are going to find it very hard to get their foot in the door. The 2022 election in Australia saw a record number of independents in the national parliament, with whom many entities want to engage also, and who are not awash with time or staff resources. I started asking Daniel, and then followed by George, what his counsel was on how to best seek to engage the independents with fewer staff, both in the Senate and the lower house, with the issues important to your government relations agenda. It does depend on the context of what policy areas you want to talk about and how that interacts with that MP's interests. So at the start, the very base level, it's just vital to know them, know who they are, understand more about them, go beyond the Wikipedia article or their social media. We know how important it is to understand an MP's maiden speech and how that talks about their motor background. But also it's important to look at, you know, there's been plenty of media coverage about the new wave of independence in this year's election. To get an understanding around their motivations, what policy areas apart from the headline ones are the ones that they're really motivated about? For instance, in the health policy space, there are two or three of those new independents who have some background in the health sector and a couple had very detailed policy statements on health that went far beyond the headlines that the teals were often in the news for. Some had very detailed priorities or address when they're in parliament. So it's important to understand at that deeper level what drives them and what drives their interactions with government, recognising that the independents don't hold the balance of power in this parliament. However, as we know, any parliament can deal with a range of issues that mean a small majority can turn into a sliver or a minority. First of all, you've got to look at what their agenda is and then try and position your company and your issues 
with their particular agenda. As an example, obviously being an insurer, we're very interested in climate change, natural disasters. So climate change, as you know, was one of the major issues of the agenda that a lot of the TEALs or the TEALs did stand for. So in, in reaching out and congratulating a number of them, I put in the letter that climate change, natural disasters are something that IOG is not only keenly interested in, but has done a lot of research. And we may be able to provide some advice, support, information to help them frame their debates, their opinions. And so that's resonated. And we've already had a meeting with one of the appeals. And so that's been productive. But it takes a bit of work because, as you point out, they don't have resources. They are really stretched in terms of having a voice or wanting to have an input into a whole lot of policy issues beyond simply climate change, the Integrity Commission, gender issues, etc. The other thing that's important is to look at their maiden speech, look at what statements they've made across different issues in Parliament since they've been there and try and resonate again in terms of what your company's policy position might be compared to what they've made a comment on in the in Parliament. In the US, UK, Germany and France, it is quite common for corporations to publish their public policy and advocacy agenda, including on their websites. I asked George and then Daniel what their view is on corporations in Australia and New Zealand making clearer their public policy positions publicly and readily accessible to MPs and their advisors, the public service and the public. Well, at Bupa, our position is to generally make our submissions public. We think there's real value in talking not just to government or the political sector, but if we really want to achieve positive change that is, you know, not purely in our commercial interests, but also in the community's interest and in the government's interest, we want to talk about that with our customers and with media and the public. So you've really got to ask yourself, if you're not at that point where your organisation wants to make policy submissions public, it's worth asking why. Is it about a bit of a historical corporate culture issue where there's a reticence to be public? If you're at a point where you are concerned about public backlash to your advocacy positions, that then raises some deeper questions where you probably need to understand why the public feels that way. Do some research, get some professional, whether it's polling or focus groups, but make sure you actually invest in understanding why you think there may be a public backlash to it, whether from your customers or from others, and then really understand, is that the direction you want to keep taking? Or is there another approach you can take where it is of value to be transparent and open with your customers and the broader public? We in IOG have taken a position of publishing our submissions as soon as, I say it's the Senate Inquiry, as soon as they make them public, we publish them on our website. And indeed, going back a few years, we produced what we called then a purple book, which is basically a list of all our policy positions. It's basically where we stand on various issues. And we put that on our website. So we believe it's important to put that information on our website so that our customers, community groups, government representatives, investors, analysts can all see what our policy positions are. And that helps the debate. I mean, in a democracy, you want actually that level of transparency, as you put it. During the first two years of the pandemic, state governments and premiers and first ministers wielded considerable influence and power. I asked Daniel and then George that given different companies and industries are exposed to legislation, public policy and regulation in different ways by the national government and state governments, what have they seen in organisations dialling up their activities to more actively engage state governments? 
We've seen that there is a lot more value in engaging state governments. A lot of that has come at the departmental level, and we actually saw it to be a two-way street. It wasn't simply us reaching out to them, but we've also seen state departments reaching out to corporates to ensure that they are engaging. They've had a really important KPI to make sure that the business sector is up to date on the government's thinking around COVID and also particularly around economic development, given the uncertainty we've had the last few years, we've seen a lot of engagement, particularly from economic development departments in a few states, where they really want to have a closer relationship with businesses, particularly ones employing lots of people in their states. And we've seen that continue through this year on issues around workforce shortages and some of the discussion around the skilled migration approach that states input into the federal policy decisions on the skilled migration lists, for instance, for various occupations. So we've seen yeah, significant uplift there. It's important to be deliberate about what adds value to your team and what perhaps is less important in terms of state governments. Every business will have a different profile in terms of the relative importance of federal and state and local governments. So it's important to make sure that you're appropriately matching your efforts with where the value lies for your organisation. From my perspective, we've had a strong engagement with the state governments and territories over a long period of time. You're right about the dynamics of change in terms of the power that the premiers have demonstrated over the the two years or now two and a half years necessarily of COVID. But again, coming back to our perspective, what challenge we've been able to put to governments, they need to understand that natural disasters, when we need repairers, assessors, etc., to cross borders, they've got to facilitate that. Natural disasters do not stop at the New South Wales Queensland and New South Wales Victoria border. And so it's taken them a while to understand the need for them to be flexible in that. I think they got it in the end, but that's the challenge we've got as a nation. A lot of our issues are cross-border issues. They do not sit comfortably within one jurisdiction. You are listening to a podcast from the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs, a membership-based organisation comprising companies, industry associations and government departments across Asia-Pacific. The Centre works with its members and other entities to apply best practice to extend their social licence to operate. The Centre develops and delivers executive education globally, conducts research and provides specialist consulting services. A big election loss such as the one suffered by the coalition in May 2022 can mean opposition struggle to find their feet and relevance during the first couple of years of being in opposition. I asked our two experts what their advice was on how to best engage with the opposition during the first few years not inhabiting the Treasury benches. Let's go back a step. If you haven't developed relationships with the opposition in the three years preceding the election, then I think you're on the back foot to begin with. And the way I operate, which I think is fairly typical of good government relations professionals, is you establish relationships with the opposition. As an example, I would spend nearly as much time, it's almost 50-50, in briefing the government as I do briefing the opposition on my issues. Because, as you know, I mean, the government rarely has a majority in the Senate. So they're relying on the opposition, the Greens, the minor parties, crossbench, etc. So it's important to form relationships, get the opposition and the crossbench Greens to understand what our issues are. The worst thing you can do is to ignore them for any period of time. And as an example, I've reached out immediately to the opposition. From the June sitting period, we started having meetings and those meetings are ongoing. As I said, it's important to brief the opposition as much as, almost as much as what you brief government. And opposition also mean the crossbench and the Greens. So they are keen to listen. 
because they need to be able to formulate policies or be able to respond to government policies as they come up in, in Parliament. Absolutely. And don't, let's not forget the bureaucrats as well. You know, we've spoken about the political world, but we know bureaucrats remain irrespective of what political party... That's a Humphrey principle. <laughs> exactly. So don't ignore and make sure you continually brief the bureaucrats, whichever departments are relevant to your, uh, your particular business. And finally, as a curveball question to both George and Daniel, I ask them, in terms of their peer view and practice of government relations, what keeps them awake at night? Response from government, you don't always have time to advocate your position. So helping our own business understand how government sometimes makes decisions in crises, that's something we should be pretty good at post-COVID, where we saw snap decisions on lockdowns and on how vaccine mandates would apply to different parts of the workforce. We should be pretty good at understanding snap decisions by government. However, it's not always easy. It's not always clear in the moment what's going on. But we've got the job of doing it for a reason. Hopefully, we do understand a little bit better what that plays out is potential intervention in our market and it can be quite dysfunctional and often the governments the politicians do not understand the long-term implications of that intervention that's what worries me sometimes and how do you circumvent that well you try as much as possible in advance to identify what the threats are and brief the government and the opposition as we've said earlier need to keep them informed of what the issues are the important point to make is don't go with a, to a politician or government with a problem. Talk to them about the issue and possible solutions. Offer them two or three options that they might be able to look at and offer to help them analyse research coming back to that evidence-based policy. And uh, hopefully the Goldilocks option will be the one that's amenable to both parties. Oh, we, we hope and hope. It <laughs> doesn't always play out that way. Our thanks to both George and Daniel for their insights and for their time. And thank you for your company on Very Public Affairs, the regular podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. If you enjoyed this episode of Very Public Affairs, subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. For more, visit the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs website at www.accpa.com.au.